another episode Behind the Vinyl with Darren and Nicholas. Behind the Vinyl, another episode. Um, Nicholas is here and uh, we're joined for the second time, Joel from Airborne. G'day. All the G'day, way mate. From How are you? I'm good, mate. Yourself? Good, mate. Good. Across the uh, long way away, all the way down, yeah. down under. It's a long way away. I heard the other day there was a cable under the sea. Have you heard about that? No. <laughs> I don't know if it was a joke, but there was like two, for example, that went to the US and, and Europe from Australia, and if one gets, you know, dredged over, cut in half, well, they have this other one. So I don't know if we're bouncing off satellites or we're going under some sort of cable thing that's under the ocean. All right. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know. Have you heard about this, uh, you know, Elon Musk, who, uh, who invented the Tesla car? Yeah, yeah, he's great. He's, he, I watch a lot of his videos and, you know, go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, have, have you heard about his new transport thing, which they're trying to implement in California, I think? Yeah. Oh, what is it? It's, it's kind of like uh, so when you when you travel, you'll be traveling like a – it's kind of like a speed train, right? Correct me if I'm yep. wrong, Nick. Yeah, It's true. like this super speed train so you can basically, um, like, go from Sweden to Norway normally take you six hours in, like, ten minutes. Yeah. And um, I think it's all underground and all this kind of stuff. Kind of like those little suction things in the bank, you know, where they put the money in and then whoosh, they shoot up. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's like that. So hopefully in my time it'll come and uh, I can get to Australia more often. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And then, look, I could be easy Chuck Cherry Ripes on there for you too and we can just sling them back. <laughs> awesome. You can just send us some vinyl, you know. We keep this sort of – Sort of cherry ripe vinyl deal going, you know, under the ocean. Be perfect. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So just so the listeners know, whenever the guys come over, they bring me something called a cherry ripe, which is a mm. uh, a, a chocolate that oh, I so love. It sounds like a cheap prostitute's name or something that you might find <laughs> cherry ripe, you know. <laughs> but it really yeah. is. It's a chocolate bar. It really is a chocolate <laughs> bar. So I love you guys for it. Although they don't last. I, I tend to try to keep off the chocolate and then every time you come over, like, my addiction grows tenfold. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I, I still remember the first time, I think, it was like, you know, we brought you a bag or we just brought you one bag, thought, oh, that'll keep him going. And then we, we like, played a gig or something and then came back and and then I was like, oh, hey, you know, you've got the cherry ripe somewhere safe so they don't melt in the sun. And you're like, nah, they're in my, in my tummy. And we're like, what? You're the whole bag. And so then next time, you know, we bring more and more. But still, they only last a day. It's like 20 bags of cherry ripes gone. So it's unreal. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Mm. But you I, can I, also I, get that in Australia? What, cherry ripes? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, look, people are stealing toilet rolls, but they're not stealing them. They're still there. They're, you know, but, um, <laughs> but look, yeah, cherry ripes, they're an Aussie, an Aussie chocolate bar. I think it was right. Nestle or Cadbury, one of the two. Yeah, and uh, yeah, for, for guys like Darren overseas, Aussies, you know, they it, it really is. It's their it's their crack cocaine of chocolate. It, it, right, they got that's it. You know, <laughs> love it. And I do. I still have another pile because I was expecting you guys over here in the summer. So there's a little bit of a pile growing of uh, vinyls for you, my friend. <clears throat> or I'll start hoarding cherry ripes just in case. That's the next thing to go. <laughs> good, good. Well, um. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Behind the Vinyl. Last time you did uh, ACDC TNT. Um, and uh, this episode, we're going to do uh, one of your records, Running Wild. Yeah, that's that's uh, 
that's 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 interesting because uh, I don't normally talk about our own stuff very much in terms of like this kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So yeah. yeah, interesting. We'll see how we go. It's, it sounds fun. I can hear Nick, you're coughing there. You're not gonna you're not gonna need a ventilator or, or anything, you know, at all. Like we can't <laughs> catch it through Skype, can we? <laughs> it's probably the Corona thing. We'll see if I live through this. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, hope, well yeah, yeah. Hopefully you do, man. Because uh, yeah. you know. You're a good dude. (laughs) Running Wild come out 23rd of June uh, 2007. Um, yeah, wow, it's a long time ago. Running it's old. A, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a long time ago. It's, it's getting old. And um, we, we were talking, Nick and I were talking about this the other day. Um, you're, you know, you're kind of outliving a lot of the bands that, that we kind of grew up with, you know, like the Van Halens and the Black Sabbaths and all that kind of stuff. Airborne is exceeding that in regards to longevity. Yeah. Well, yeah, we just keep doing it, you know. Um, it is, it is. Uh, we don't really think about time that much, but looking back and thinking, like just when you said 2007, I mean, that's like, fuck, it's a long time ago, you know. Um, but yeah, we just keep doing what we're doing. It's, uh, I guess, in a way, you could say we're a one-trick pony sort of thing. But when I don't know, when we're not in other ways, but we are in some. But I think 
the, the good parts of what we do is we just stick the course and stay stay true to you know what we loved playing when we first formed the band, and that's that's what we do. Yep. <clears throat> like something. Um, so let's let's dig right into this record. Um, and you got signed to Capital Records first, right? Capital Records, and we we did the whole thing. We went out to the big the big you know dinners with the record label. This is where Napster really hadn't fucked everybody just yet. So we had. <laughs> You know, big dinners at the label. They bought some guitars for us, and we, you know, we 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 walked around on the roof of the building, and he told us stories about Frank Sinatra. And we went down to the, they, they had these um like uh, echo chambers that were famous underneath the car park, and they were, you know, I don't know if they're there anymore, but there's a lot of cool stuff. So we signed the Capitol. We had these big parties and stuff, and we went to this, we went to some party. We were, we were staying at the Roosevelt in the. It was a Paris Hilton or like all. Remember when they were getting around in the two thousand and sevens? They were all there with their mates and stuff, and um, you know it was pool parties and things. And then, and then you know we recorded this record, and uh, the label spent a lot of money doing it. We played, we we did half of it at Henson Studios where the Stones recorded. Uh, it, it, a lot of big stuff. If you look up Henson Studios, you'll see a lot of you know, Michael Jackson, everybody. And well, then, Henson, um, Henson was the old A&M studio. That's where We yeah. Are the World was done. We Are the where... World. Yeah, exactly. All that, you know, all that. Al- all Alice that. in Chains. That, dude, yeah. Nicholas, Van Halen even I th- recorded. I know. I think I think Van Halen recorded their, uh, well, their last album, A Different Kind of Truth, in, in Henson Studios. There you go. So, yeah, a big studio and, um, you know, and uh, was like, oh, yeah, rock and roll, this is great. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. And then we get back to Australia, the record's done, it's mixed, and then uh, we get this call, oh, you know, Capital Records is really no longer a thing anymore. You know, they've um, they've been taken over by, I think it was Virgin at the time when they were starting to do a record company. And then uh, so yeah, 90% of the bands on the label were dropped. And there were bands out on the road, like they were just – baby bands out there like us at the time and they were touring had their tour support pulled in the middle of a tour and like literally had to cancel shows and drive home in their van you know with their tail between their legs and so we were dropped from capital we had this album and then um you know we went on to uh, to roadrunner at the time but i won't go too far anyway but basically yeah that's what happened we were on capital records and it was it was it was kind of like indiana jones when he goes under the under the doors it's coming down and grabs his hat we were one of those bands that just got through to see a bit of what the rock and roll industry was like and it was fucking wild it was great and then all of a sudden <laughs> you know it's uh it's it's different now is <laughs> <laughs> well, that um was that your first time in America? Yeah. We, we actually went to America just before that to support Kid Rock uh, in, uh, at the Fillmore, and we did another couple of gigs. Uh, there's a festival gig, and then we went back home. It was only for a week. It was just to get the label pumped up about us. Love it. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So let's, let's then move on to uh, Roadrunner. So who, who was, did Monty sign you? Uh, Ron Berman. Oh, Ron Berman, gotcha. Ron yep. Berman, Case was the boss. Uh, Jonas, who's uh, who's still out, like he's our boss now, you know, over at um at, at Spine Farm, and uh, so he was there. And you know, a lot of people that worked at Roadrunner, I've run into on the road at different labels or or at the or at Spine Farm. And um, but yeah, we were signed out of New York through Ron Berman, and um, it was it was it was pretty it was pretty quick how it happened. But it was, and I don't really remember it because we we're at South by Southwest. And uh, we played our gig, and then after our gig, got really, really drunk. It was my first time having Irish car bombs, 
they were these uh, Guinness with Jägermeister in them sort of vibe. And, and I just got really, really on it. And uh, I don't really remember much. But the next day, I had like the alcohol shakes and we had the size of like a contract. And it's like just this sort of jo- like scribbled mess. But um, sign a roadrunner and uh, rock and roll was uh, was safe <laughs> into Fairborn again. So we were great after that. <laughs> <laughs> nice. It was a good time. into recording the record like something nick and i talked about um we're, we're talking producer um producer bob marlett um andy wallace mixed you and ted jensen ted mastered jensen. the record fucking it's the peak the the creme de la creme of it is of the industry yeah can you tell us a little bit about working with bob 
Yeah, working with Bob, uh, he, uh, when we first met him and we, we spoke to, a, a, oh, it must have been about four or five producers, and his thing was, he was, I remember he asked for a cigar in the, in the office and we thought, well, that guy's pretty cool straight up the bat. And he said, look, I don't want to change what you guys do. I just, uh, you know, I love what you're doing. I just want to, I just want to produce it and do what I do, you know. And we, he was like, and we were like, what's that? And he goes, just punch you in the fucking face. And we're like, well, that guy. He, he really gets it. And um, we spoke to a few other dudes and it was just different pages. But with him, it was straight down the line. And he taught us so much, you know, like he was um, really instrumental in the way we, you know, would think about the lyrics or we would think about the structure or something or, or what even what key it was in, you know. You're like, try that in the A. And, you know, we'd do that and, and that was awesome. And then he uh, – and with Dave Schiffman, the, uh, he was the engineer and uh, he's another legend in the industry and he was um, super funny to work with. We had lots of in-jokes and everything and – um, it was just, I don't know, it was pretty, it was a bit of a whirlwind, but it was, uh, it was, it was a good time. And then of course, um, we had, uh, Andy Wallace mix it and he's, yeah, as yet, I mean, you look at his resume, it's insane. And, uh, I felt really bad because like, he, you know, he set the mix over and it was really, really great. And I just was like, and I'm like, you know, it's done now, it's done. You don't need to do a thing, right? And I was like, uh, just the hi-hats, they're a little bit crisp, you know, can we do something like a lot of crispness, but they're a bit sort of. You know, in the in the pointy area, can we sort of get him a bit more sh- sh- instead of? Sh- sh- and he was, I thought, oh, he's going to just shoot me or something. Like this guy mixes like <laughs> biggest records of all time. He's like, yeah, no problem. Then he went back and did it, and then it was fine. <laughs> but um, you know, because we were living in a band house in Thornbury, Australia, all together, and we were sharing, um, you know, we would share bowls of spaghetti and stuff because you know the band had no money. We we were like in debt, and we're like, you know, not wanting to have jobs because we just wanted to play music and write songs. So, you know, it was pretty it was pretty surreal going there to do a record like that and then flying back to Australia to, you know, your rental band house with holes in the walls and, like, you know, there's a dead rat under the fridge that, you know, oh, fuck, what's that smell, you know? <laughs> and, oh, what's for tea? Oh, pasta, yeah, okay, I'll have the same thing again. You know, <laughs> eat pasta for a week, boiled eggs for breakfast. It was – and then, you know, you got this record and then, you know, you've been to, the, been to America, this, this uh, you know, uh, country it was uh, did you know me seen on films with like Elvis and uh, but yeah well, that was a long way of saying working with Bob Dave Ship and Andy Wallace it was super surreal and I still pitch myself about it now as a you know even down the road that we're at it was like mind blowing what we were doing back then. But as do you remember it like it. when you when when you um, when you decided to take that step that you weren't going to work anymore and you, you're going to go full throttle with the band. Cause that's a, that's a big step to take when you're it's young. A big, it's a big step to take. Um, you know, when, uh, you've got, you know, your PlayStation one, <laughs> but, um, we, no, we were super focused. We were, we just went, look, we don't care what it takes. Uh, we managed to scrounge up some money through the government, through some, scheme thing that we um you know managed to make work it's just saying it worked however we did it it was uh it was uh it was really great because we were able to get some sort of money which means which which we could focus on just you know handing out our press kit and putting up our posters for our gig on tuesday night at seven o'clock and uh but we what it meant was that we actually had to live super like really down to just living like dogs like one big bowl uh, you know, of, of pasta and um, and really just keeping it tight, you know. And whenever we would get a rider, 
you know, other bands would leave their riders and or even their own, they'd leave their own rider and then just leave, like, you know, be like four cans of beer left and we'd take their rider and we'd take ours back. We'd try and get beers from people that come to the gigs, oh, you know, they're like, oh, do you want a beer, man? I go, yeah, oh, I'd love one. And, you know, and then they'd buy a beer. So you, we'd hoard up all, we'd pack up our Marshalls and our Gibsons and everything, our Explorers and shit and all that gear, and then we'd uh, into the back of the van, and we'd always have the rider, which we called Spider the Rider. So we'd spider in, you know, crawl around, take other people's stuff, put it in ours, and we had this fridge that had nothing in it but just all these different kinds of beer and then, like, one big frozen bowl of pasta. (laughs) 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 But that's what you got to do if you're going to live in a house together as a band. Yeah, hell yeah. But yeah. Do you think that's a little bit of the secret uh, secret ingredient that that is made airborne, airborne? You know, Cause yeah. that, that, that you know, um, just the no compromise. We're just going to fucking do this, you know. Definitely, the no, the no compromise. It's it's a and that was one thing about Bob Marlette. Actually, he had this saying: was whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get the take, or whatever it takes to get the song down, the record. Whenever anything got a bit tough, you'd be like, whatever it takes, man. You know, we go, okay, cool. That's a good saying. And um, but we've always had that mentality of having a there's there's nothing else but the band. And then, you know, it's it's very blinkers, but you know, on, but you're very focused. And uh it's just uh, we're still very much the same way. And I think for any band, we always get asked, you know, what what how do you be in a band and you know, get to the you know level you guys are at and you know, and to keep going and, and you know, actually not you know, sort of break up or, or stop or, you know, or just get anywhere. And we're just like, well, one of the things we did was live together and that sort of got rid of any ego thing that could come up or got rid of anyone not wanting to be there because if you live with us for a few few weeks under one roof like that, you're like, oh, you know what, this band thing's not for me. This is a bit fucking raw, you know. Um, but it was uh, also got the band to play tight as we, um, it made us a tighter group on stage to know what the other guy was doing. Yeah. Uh, tele- telepathically or, or whatever. We just could read each other and that pay- paid off with gigs, you know, jamming solos in the crowd and stuff. Was it, was it all four of you living in that house? Yeah, all four. All four uh-huh. living there. And, uh, yeah, back in, it was like between 2003 to 2008, I think it was. Okay. Lovely. Yeah. And and did you guys did you guys play? How much did you play when you're in that house? Like, because these songs were written by you and Ryan, right? Yeah, under under that roof, um, in in that house. Uh, not all of them actually. We wrote half of them. Oh, yeah, I'm just reading the list of them now. Uh, we wrote half of them in um, in LA. They when we so it was the album was done in two parts. The first three months because your visa runs out after three months was yeah. done in a storage facility. So we were just like the label just gave up wanting to pay for the proper rehearsal area because it was just taking too long. Because we got off the plane and they're like, guys, guys, we've been going all these lyrics, you know, and uh, where's the hook? And we go, well, what do you mean a hook? We go on fishing. You go, oh, my God, oh, my God. You don't even know what a hook is. I'm like, well, how do you know what a melody is? I'm going, what what is a melody? (laughs) And then suddenly I'm like, oh, wow, this is going to take some time. And, um so they uh, put us in this storage facility, which was a drive down, I think it was Sepulveda Boulevard, and it was about an hour's drive from the Oakwoods. And the Oakwoods, if you look up any of that, it's pretty legendary history there with Warren Zevon for one, you know, shooting shotguns out of his, you know, out, out of the window of the hotel. And, like, Ted Nugent would be one to know about, uh, would be one to know about 
the uh, Oakwoods. But um, so we drive an hour every day out of town, basically to this place where you'd hear, you know, actual guns going off around the corner, and we had microwave meals, and we were locked in this room, uh, a storage room. Like imagine any sort of just four walled room with no 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 light, you know, or anything. And we were in there, and we were there for three months until we got the record right, and the label finally came out, and they would see us play it live, and that's how they'd approve it. It was pretty old school. Um, they don't sort of really do that anymore. But um, uh, and Bob would check in and give us notes and be like, you know, work on this, work on that. Why don't you try this? All right, I'll leave you for another week or two, and then come back and. Between that and throwing a frisbee, that's what we did for three months, and then, <laughs> and then, and then the visa ran out, and we had to go back home, and then for for two weeks to reset the visa, and then we fly back, and then we finally recorded the record, and that's yeah, that's how that actually happened. Wow. Can you remember when you got in the studio? What did you uh, What did you work on first? The first song was I do actually, and it was it was Heartbreaker, and I still remember it to this day because sometimes I check in uh, just to see what I sounded like back on the first record, and I always go to that one because it was the first song we sang, and it was the first song we tracked. We tracked we tracked a bunch of them, a group of them, and then we tracked another group, pretty sure, and then uh, and then we did the, oh no sorry we tracked all the music first, and then we did vocals, which right, was okay. um, pretty fucking extra- it was pretty hard. Uh, I'd never sang on a record before. I was like, all right, got to sing, you know, 11 songs in a row. Um, yeah. But it was, uh, that was definitely the first one.
so you said you wrote them in two. You wrote some over in the house. <clears throat> which which songs did you write in the house? Stand up, rock and roll. Yep. Run and wild. Uh, yep. And let's girls in black. We and cheap wine and cheaper women, but it had different lyrics. And okay. Heartbreaker had different lyrics and a different melody, but they were the ones we wrote in Australia and we've been playing them at the Duke of Windsor and other gigs around in Australia. We've done it, I think we've done, yeah, we've done sort of a few shows up and down the coast playing those songs with some other ones that we've never released or, or you know, bothered to. Okay, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Um, all right, so let's, let's move forward to... Um, um, I'm running, but in Nick, if you got anything, mate, otherwise I'm like, uh, <clears throat> no, I, w- I was just thinking like, uh, the overall feeling of, of being in LA, uh, and, and recording your first album. I mean, what was it like just being in LA for those months? Oh, I still remember the, the sun and the, the warmth, the glow of the sky was different. It was a bit more hazy. And I, I remember, like, the, the smells were different. Like, I remember we were in the hotel and, like, I didn't get, like, smell the money and stuff. I'm just weird with smells and stuff like that. <laughs> but it, it, was, it, was really, it was really something seeing, like, a police car for the first time, like an American car car. And he's, like, he's got to protect and serve on the side. I'm like, is this, is this like, Warner Brothers movie world sort of thing? Like, is this a joke? <laughs> like, it looked like... Um, it looked like it was straight out of a movie, like almost like a toy, because the colours are so much brighter and warmer, and, and like no the actual police officer gets out and he goes into this place and he gets uh, he gets some tacos and stuff, and you know gets back in the car and drives off, and I, I just it was just trippy seeing things that would be normal you take for every day, but um, America was great. Like I, I remember, you know, we just. We just went and got drunk a lot of the time and just but experiencing that and then just talking to Americans and it was for us it was pretty it was a bit of a trip because we yeah, we come from country Australia to you know to walking around in LA with and being in a rock and roll band. Um and just walking around and then playing a gig and like it was it was pretty it was pretty cool. Did you catch any shows while you were in LA? We did. We saw um we saw Wasp. Oh. Uh yeah, Wasp. They were playing at a, I think it was it was a key club, and right. uh, it was unreal. I'd never seen like a band like that. I'd only ever seen you know Aussie bands, uh, or um, you know, but I had seen ACDC in Australia, and um, but that. So I guess you know I had seen some bands and Rose Tattoo, uh, but I hadn't really seen much else. And then to see an American band in America, especially at a place called the Key Club, because um, I'd seen the decline of Western civilization. Uh, part two, the, the the metal years, and you know, got you know the the madness happening on that. But it was it was um it wasn't it wasn't scary, but there was a vibe in there, and it was it was very it was different just to see a band like Wasp. And I think we wrote a song on the record that was kind of might have been influenced a bit from the speed of some of the songs. Maybe it was like Blackjack or something, where we just were into the speed of the, that they were playing at and stuff like that. But yeah, we saw, we saw, then we saw, uh, we saw Poison and, um, oh, yeah, nice. they, were, they were playing out at, um, uh, I forget the name of the place. It was this, uh, amphitheater. Uh, it's got a funny name to, it, I'll think of it, but yeah, we saw them and, and some of the band supported them. I don't know. I can't remember who it was, but, um, yeah, we saw a few bands. The label took us to them. And then, you know, they'd be like, come back into the band. And we're like, wow, this is crazy. But we, we actually hung, we hung out the rainbow quite a lot. It was just up the road. And um, we saw Lemmy there a bunch of times. And, and that's, if you get into Run and Wild, 
we'll talk about the film clip if if you were going to go there. But that's how we, you know, ran into him at, at um, in there, and the rainbow was fucking rocking back then. I'm sure it probably is, still is now, but it was, <laughs> it was pretty bloody wild. <laughs> I, I think that that whole that whole part of of the strip was was a little bit different back then, and, and probably yeah, so yeah. much different, you know. 10 years, 15 years earlier. Now it's it's a little bit corporate now and it's hotels and parking lots and all that kind of shit.
Okay, let's well, let's go on to Running Wild. Running Wild was your, yep. your first single from the record. Um, mm. Actually, come out before, literally come out before the record, right? Come out in May. It did. It did come out before the record. We released that as a single before anything else. Yeah, yeah. Because um, the record in Australia came out earlier. We released it in Australia. I don't think it was – actually, there mustn't have been any of this sort of streaming or anything going on. I think people actually bought records back then. So I think we were able to release it in Australia about three or four months before the rest of the world. Hmm. Yeah. See, that could that could never happen now, you know. No. Nah. <laughs> We we see that a little bit on on some of the records we do for behind the vinyl, like you know there was a European release, sometimes even an Australian release. European, America, Australia. Um, now it's impossible. So you guys must have caught the tail end of where that was possible. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't even know if YouTube was around or it must have been, but they mustn't have put it up online or the, maybe the label pulled it down. But just thinking about that, you probably you could do a release. You could do an Australian-only release and just not add it to the Spotify's or even allow it to be downloaded outside of that country. Uh, I mean, it'd be a bit, it'd be a bit of a dog move to your fans overseas, um, but you could do the same thing. You could have a, you could have a, you know, a European version only with different tracks. But then, you know, you don't give that to Spotify or you know, Apple or anyone. You just give them the normal album when the official release comes out. But you have these other special editions. Mm. I don't know, bands might start doing that, being that we can't tour at the moment. We're going to do something. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> so so uh, Running Wild, um, see, that's, that's a great song. Um, well, actually, before we get into that, let's go to the opening track for the record, uh, Stand Up for Rock and Roll. Yeah. That's, that's basically a war cry for, um, for you guys. Those, that title alone is basically, you know, that's airborne, totally. Yeah. And if, and it's a great way to start a record, you know, the slow of the kind of slight intro to build you up and then and then that fucking punch in the face. Exactly what Bob Marlett said was a punch in the face. And um, we had a different intro for it and he said, go make a better one. And so we did. And that was that's why that intro is like that. And the whole, I mean, this record, we were, we were going to call it Stand Up For Rock and Roll. That was the name of the record. And we went with Run and Wild. I can't remember why. We just did. But because Stand Up Rock and Roll was the, the core belief of Airborne and still is. It's, it's one of the most, it's what's right in our heart. And it came from being in Warrnambool where we all grew up and there was a, there was a pub called the Lady Bay Hotel where bands would play, bands like the Angels, Midnight Oil, Screaming Jets. And uh, we wanted to play there. And as soon as we were got our band going and we were old enough to, to play there, or they'd let us, they, it, was, it was not down. Um, and uh, so we could never play there. So we were like, this is bullshit. They keep letting venues get knocked down. This is way back then. And we were like 2003 or four when we wrote this one. And um, our whole thing was, nah, this is, you got to stand up for rock and roll. Everyone's got to stand up for it because it, rock and roll needs it. So I, you're right. It is a war cry. And that was the, was the whole thing um, was being, having that call to arms to n- not just everyone in Australia, but everyone in the world. And I still remember we played in Sweden. First time we played Sweden Rock and we opened with this song. By the start of the song, there was maybe 200 people there on this hill. And at the end of that song, we were doing the big finish and this, they were just running over the hill like they heard, you know, they heard the, the chords or the song or, or something and they, they heard the vibe of what we were playing because they clearly had never seen the band or known about us. And they just kept, I remember seeing the flags all swinging around and it was one of the best gigs we ever played, I think, uh, on that tour. And I still get, still get chills about it now. 
Um, but yeah, Stand Up for Rock and Roll is probably the most important song, I think, uh, on the record. I don't know, maybe, but it definitely is is what the band's all about. Well, that's a war cry that works today as well. I mean, just looking at Stockholm, where all these venues are closing down or they have to move or whatever. Yep. There's been a lot of that just like this last this last year, these last 12 months. A lot of places have to close down. So that still works and that's still something you need. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, it's happening everywhere in the world and, and we keep running into it and we'll run into things where there'll be a DB limit or some will say, you know, that we can't do something and we'll be like, nah, fuck it, we'll stand up for rock and roll. If there's a fine, you know, we're getting a fine, you know, like or whatever. We're just, it's just the thing that I think, um, I think us and, you know, definitely our crowd all understand and it's just, you know, And even if you don't like our band, stand up for rock and roll anyway. You know, if you if you're just staunchly about heavy metal, then stand up for heavy metal. It's all, um, you know. I think Saxon brought everyone together with the, what was it denim and leather brought us together. Um, we're all yeah. kind of the same group, you know. And it's just um, we got to fight for it. It's just the thing that you have to fight for if you want to keep it the way it is. Absolutely. There, there is, and growing up from uh, in Australia, you you do have that. Um, That that Australian, you know, stand up for yourself attitude. The attitude that the Angels had, the attitude that yeah. that Rose Tattoo had, um, Screaming Jets had later on, you know. Definitely. And the thing is, like with what you're saying about those those venues, it's, we've noticed, um, like since we've been on the road for the last I don't know 10 years, is that those 300 caps that we started at over in Europe and those places have, like, a lot of them have disappeared. They're not even there anymore. So. I mean, whilst, you know, the, the big old theatres and stuff are still there, you know, as we're climbing up through them, um, but we, we always, you know, stop and think, I don't know how many times, and go, well, where's the kids in this band going to, in this town going to play? Or where's the next touring musician bands, young bands coming through, going to play at the 300 cap, you know, load your own gear, tiny little stage? Where's that sweat box? And they're not there. They're very important stepping stones for any band that's going to, get to the next level and if you take that away then you know it's like an ecosystem rock and roll and it really is like it's it's majorly under threat because not even young bands that don't have a record label or don't have a manager don't have you know um all of that they can't even go down to their local place and play because there's no you know no venue instead of there being a venue there's a big stack of apartments you know, owned by somebody else in some other country. It doesn't even make any sense, you know. No. Right?
Alrighty, uh, moving on. Uh, Running Wild. Back to Running Wild. First single, uh, fucking amazing song. Um, and that video. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's um, the video was with 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 Lemmy driving the truck, and he um, he was the most coolest bloke, you know, that we'd ever really, you know, of, of that kind of caliber. I don't think there's anyone bigger till this day, or more important to rock and roll that we've met, other than Lemmy. And he um, from day one, we were we we were we were you know we were nothing at all, not even a, a band that even had a record out. And he he was he just he heard the song. And he was like, yeah, I don't mind that, you know. And then it was um, driving the truck. Because originally the movie Con Air, there's a dude who drives a truck in that. There's like a, a scene at the end. And we, we asked the label to contact this actor that has like a five-minute part in the film <laughs> to drive the, the truck in, the, in, 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 uh, in Run Wild. And they were like, oh, why do you want, why do you want this obscure guy? We've tried to find him. And like, he doesn't exist. We don't know what's happened to him. Like we've had to go through all the credits Call an agent because you're not even listed, and uh, <laughs> and we're like, yeah, we just love him because he looks like Lemmy, and then we're like, well, why don't you ask Lemmy? And we're like, oh, we can't do that. That's there's no way. It's like you know, asking God, uh, you know, to um to be in your video, and then uh, and we're like, no, sure, it's no problem. He's just, he's, I bet he's down the rainbow. We'll call him and we'll see. And then when they got back and and they said, oh, you know, he's he's up for doing it. He's into the song. And um, you know, uh, you know, he just all he doesn't even want to be paid. And we're like, oh, wow, you know. And then he was like, he just wants a limo with some salt and chips, a couple of bottles of jacks, and uh, a good sound system so he can, you know, crank it up in there. And you know, and he wants to smoke. And we're like, cool. Well, did the label, you know, sort all that, you know. And they did, and Capitol Records, you know, rock and roll. And they did, and and then you know, eventually we got to meet him, and he comes down to the clip in the in the we were in the truck shooting our scene in the truck driving around and um and then uh this black limo pulls up and then the window comes down the hand comes out and it's just smoking it was very much it was he was very uh what's the word it had a lot of mystique about it and it, it almost seemed like it was a bit of a dream like the way it pulled up and like even the tailpipe had smoke coming out and the red lights and you know you could hear this music coming out of the out of the out of the limo when the cameraman was changing uh, changing the film out. That's the other thing we shot it on film. Uh, um, and uh, eventually, after a couple of hours, we went over there to meet him. And uh, he, the window came down, and he said, "Hey boys, come over here. We're going to better say hello." And we said, oh, "Okay, let me here go and Joel and Ryan, you know." And he's like, "Come in, you know. It looks cold out there." And so we came in, and and uh, and then I remember the long walk down the limo. I was crawling down, and Lemmy sitting at the back. With the jack in hand, and he's got the ciggy, and he's, you know, he's got ZZ Top playing in there. Uh, uh, was uh, the, the first, the first Brown Sugar, the first record, and um, he was uh, playing that song. And then he was air guitar into it. You know, I made him a Jack and Coke, and I was really nervous about it because I was had to put my hand in the ice thing and put it in. And I used to work at pubs, so there was no ice shovel. Uh, and it was it was, and then you know, and then. He and then he, um, you know, we, he listened to some some Motorhead demos and, and asked what we thought, and they sounded awesome. And then uh, he played some more ZZ Top, and he he told us about what was going to be ahead, kind of like a a, a, tr- a master tradesman would tell apprentices before they go out into the world to you know do do their trade. And he he just gave us a good schooling about what was to come, like uh, with, with labels, uh, managers, uh, the road. Uh, and what it, what it takes to do this and how, you know, a lot of people are going to want to try and change what you do and you just got to tell them to 
well, fuck off, basically, you know. And he, he had lots of little jokes and things that were pretty funny. And then um, the director comes in and, like, all right, uh, Mr. Mr. He's, like, looking at his paper. The guy couldn't even pronounce it. Mr. Kill, Mr. Lerbeck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you come out here. <laughs> and uh, he's like, all right, I better get, into my, better get into my costume. And then so we got out and he uh, went and got changed and he comes walking out from behind the – out of the limo and he comes around and goes, he's fully dressed like he is in the video, and he goes, well, what do you what do you think of this, guys? Does it look all right, boys? And then we went, oh, because he's standing there in front of Lemmy with the cowboy boots and all, all the stuff <laughs> on the hat, and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, double thumbs up. It looks great. We were like, yeah, shitless. Like, <laughs> he looked like he still is. You know, he really was the god of rock and roll, and he just comes out and he gets in the truck and he just does his bit, you know, with like one or two, three or four takes and he was done. He never had to redo anything. And then um, it was like, you know, Limo took him back to the rainbow. I'll fast forward for you. We finished the video the next day at sunlight. We went back to the Highland Gardens for a couple of hours kip. And then we went down to the rainbow just as the sun was setting. And Lemmy was still there drinking and the same stuff. Actually, no, he had a change. He had a different jacket on, but he hadn't been to bed. And, you know, we had a, we had a jack with him and said thanks and stuff. And he, he was uh, most, yeah, I got, he really was uh, that song, I Ain't No Nice Guy After All. Well, he, he really was an absolute gentleman, you know. <laughs> How, how much of, 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 like, Lemmy and Motorhead and that spirit uh, is in Airborne? Oh, there's, there's, there's a lot. There's a real lot. We're, even growing up, um, we, we would – the two bands really <laughs> listened to ACDC and Motorhead. Um, and even to the point where in, um, in uh, Airheads, that movie that we edited of the school magazine, we used to, like – you know, watch that all the time and, and Airheads and think that Airheads was a real band and that was, you know, <laughs> one of my only mates that could pick out that Lemmy was in it. But, um, no, his spirit for rock and roll and uh, his his mantra um, has always been, you know, you know, and when he comes out of stage and he says, um, you know, uh, uh, what does he say when he goes out on stage? He walks out and goes, and then turns around, hey, good night, we're motorhead. We play rock and roll, and then they fucking go into it. But that's what they do. They play rock and roll, and it's it's not – if you ask him for something else, well, you know, you're at the wrong gig. But if you want rock and roll, then you'll get it 100% from the heart. And I think that's what um, – I think that's what great rock and roll bands have. And, and you know, and we definitely follow – we definitely follow the Motorhead way of, you know, really not listening to people and just playing the playing – the, making the songs you want to make and playing the shows you want to play and, you know, um, that's what you got to do, I think, if you're going to be a rock and roll band. Yeah. 
let's keep moving through the record. Uh, too much, too young, too fast. My yeah. favorite song. I love oh, really? it. Yeah. Okay. We, um... and, and, and it's funny that that someone would have the balls to say to you, "There's no, there's no hooks," you know. this record is full of hooks. We hadn't written any of this like like this yet, though. This was coming out of the like we had the songs, but they were kind of a bit really. They were the demo versions of these weren't what the album was. We we worked hard in that in that uh, storage facility, and this was one of the ones that was written there. And right. uh, I remember I, I found um, I found this the other day. I was looking for an old riff, and um, I went through some of the old recordings from the storage facility. And this song got worked over and over and over and over again because we just didn't really have a, a verse riff. Right. And it was always changing keys and messing around and doing something different. It had, and it, it had like this kind of, uh, it was like a Judas Priest, um, uh, live at, uh, yeah, Living After Midnight. It had that, like a verse was kind of like that and then it changes to the, changes key. It was it's a similar key change and we, couldn't get that to work, and then I found where we did get it to work, and I, um, it was just playing it over and over and over and over again. We heard, I remember, and this is funny because I hadn't heard "Lick It Up" by Kiss in a long, long, long time. And we went to see Wasp, and then yeah. after that, we went downstairs to some other. It was like a party underneath, either there or somewhere else. It was a bit blurry, but I remember walking in. And we were the only ones at the party first because we were, like, you know, keen to get there. And <laughs> so we got in and um, there was this huge speaker stack and it was playing – it walked in the middle of the verse, lick it up. I remember thinking, what the fuck is this song? It's great, you know, a big chugga-chugga riff. And, that, and that's where you can sort of see how too much is a bit like that in the verses. And then, the, you know, and then I remember the next – you know, that was – I was oh, I reckon this is the – that's what the verse needs to be like. It needs to be more up, a bit more fun. We keep trying to pull it down somewhere else. So let's, you know, we get in there and play it. And, and we got in and we played it. And um, and there it was. It was really simple. We're like, fuck, that was easy. You know, and then <laughs> on the next one. Well, the title, Too Much, Too Young, Too Fast, was it a little bit of that, like with that whole thing with Capitol Records, LA, You Were Young, all that? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's an old saying. I guess yeah. so. Like subconsciously, it, it could be, you know, that we were pretty young, and it was a lot happening, you know. Yeah. And um, the, the whole the whole mo for it was that it was, you know, I think the the, the key line is um, I'm going out in style. If this is the end of days, I'm going out in style, which kind of works with now, you know. No one knows what's going to happen. Um, but I guess one of the things with the band's always been about that, like even with Live It Up, the whole thing. Another under the band is a message what the band always puts out there is tomorrow is not guaranteed. Right. And, and that's where, um, you know, that song comes in. It's just, you know, there's a lot of fucking stuff in this world, like world leaders or, you know, different laws here and there. And they were saying about buildings being knocked down, venues that bands rock at. And it's just, you can't control it all. So if it all, if it's all going to end, then, you know, there's an asteroid going to, you know, knock us all out. Um, then, you know, if you're going to do it, if you're going to have one last night or one whatever, tomorrow's not always going to be there, do it big because, you know, and we were doing that every time, we, all the time we were there. But that um, definitely I reckon the subconscious because it was a lot happening very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's still a staple song for your live set today, right? 
Yeah, we, we can't play a set without it. If we did, we'd probably, you know, someone would say something bad. So we um, <laughs> but we love playing it too. It's for us playing that song is um, it, look. It, honestly, I, I think of a lot when I'm playing when I'm playing on start, stage. I'll think about you know that time and particularly the the four wall four concrete walls that we were in. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's a fun one. in the rough diamond in the rough so that one is uh we had finished the record and we had 10 songs and uh it was the it was right at the last bit of the whole record and we just went fuck we we've got to do one more and that was it that was the 11th hour song and um it's in a different key like we the guitars are all in d but not drop d they're in uh like i guess d natural or whatever like the whole guitar just goes down um, and it was something very different we hadn't done before, and was um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a diamond in the rough. Can't get enough. You know? Let's, let's uh, talk us through lyrically, or let's talk us through the, the meaning behind that song. Yeah, uh, the, the meaning behind that song. It's about a. I guess it's it's kind of like from definitely from the point of view of from the band. You know, we're you know we're um, 
very very working class individuals and you know with with not I think there's a dollar in my pocket I think that's one of the lyrics and about going after you know clearly punching above your weight and uh, and then getting there in the chorus and <laughs> it's like for uh, you know it's the the anthem for um for you know the the dude who can't get the the, the classy girl well he gets her in the in diamond and that's that's what that one was about. Because well, you know, we were, at, we were in Capital, we were at the Roosevelt, we were, you know, we were mingling with a lot of um, sort of uh, well-off and, you know, shiny people. <laughs> we weren't so uh, shiny or well-off and we were just, we were like rats that someone had let in and given like, like a tuxedo and said, get in, you know. <laughs> we were running around in there, it was great. <laughs> but that, that, as a song for the 11th hour, that's that's a great song, man. That's a yeah, killer song. It really it's is. It's a good beat to it. It's a good groove, and it's a, a big chorus. It's uh, that's I guess that's the big thing about this record is uh, most of the choruses are pretty big and uh, anthemic, and that one um, as soon as it was it was so quick. I think we played it like once, and it was it was really easy to sing, and it was uh, it wrote really really quick. It wrote in one night, and um, it was yeah, it's the eleventh hour classic track it was great
got there's a there's a bunch of other songs to talk about. But we'll we'll skip it through. Um, yeah. Cheap wine and cheap women and and yeah. cheaper women. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cheap. Yeah. That is uh that is that was a song called originally back in the day called Making Love was was what that was called and that's why you know for example that's why they're like guys we got we got to work on these titles here you can't go out with Making Love what is this. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> like, okay. Cheap wine and cheaper women. Like that's more like it. Okay, so we uh, we, did we did that one. But the ver- yeah, the verses, um, the verses uh, we re- rewrote those as well. And uh, I'm trying to think of it. I'm trying to think of the verses so I know where we're at. It's but it's 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 kind of like cheap wine and cheap women. It's like it's when you have a breakup and all you got left is your cheap bottle of wine. Basically, that's to, to, to sum it up and how that is. Also, being in a band, you know, uh, all you get on the right is cheap wine, but um, it's uh, we were playing that in Australia before we recorded that one. So, we um, another one, different groove, different vibe. Um, but yeah, it's about you know, the other side of the coin, I guess, what Diamond the Rough is at. Love it again, a- another great song, it's uh, phenomenal. Um, and and um. And Heartbreaker, let's talk us about that. Yeah, Heartbreaker is, uh, I mean, I'm still crazy. They go, Heartbreaker is a classic. I think I think everyone's got, honestly, that's why we, that's why we have Heartbreaker, uh, because have you seen the movie Still Crazy at all? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I well, they, Hello, Wembley. Yeah, that's the one. And they have, uh, it's a great film. We, we, so yeah. we used to watch that with Airheads and, of course, Spinal Tap. And we watched because you know, and but when we're being kids, we thought those band the bands were real. Like we thought Spinal Tap was real, and we thought Strange Fruit and Still Crazy yeah. was real, and we thought that the Lone Rangers, how can you pluralize the Lone Ranger in Airheads was real? <laughs> and there's something to do with the band being called Airborne and the logo of the Airheads VHS cover, which is why the band you know, Airborne Airheads, and then. Uh, and then, of course, the Lone Rangers spelling it wrong. Airborne is technically spelt wrong in some in some circles. Uh, I think it's old Roman spelling. I think if, if if I'm correct. But in Still Crazy, this new guy joins the band, and then they were like, um, well, he goes to the band. This kid and these guys were in their fifties. Well, why are you why are you guys all still playing Heartbreaker? And then the guy goes, Heartbreaker is a classic. He goes, Well, why don't we agree what key it's in? And they were like, B, C, D. They don't know what key it is. And so, <laughs> We we as yeah, as like you know we were like uh, well, we've got to have a song called Heartbreaker you know because that's a classic and we need to have a Heartbreaker song so we wrote Heartbreaker and um, it's again it's about actually getting the girl and uh, <laughs> and um, we uh, the only difference we did from the version in Australia was um, uh, we added a line to each verse so I think it goes uh, a da da a da da then it would riff but now it goes. Uh, so hot, so fine, da 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 iron, or something like I can't remember it now. I need to be on stage to remember it. One day I'm going to need the teleprompter, but um, not right now. <laughs> uh, it's just like I haven't been on the right for a while. But um, it is, we added a thing to it, like a line. That was Bob's idea. He said, just add another line. So we wrote more for that one. And then, look, Heartbreaker, Girls in Black, two very similar songs. Are, um, the Girls in Black is probably the most unchanged. And we actually worked on that with Bob Marlette in Australia before we went there and then changed it again. And that's probably the – we've been playing Girls in Black probably the longest out of all of those songs.
And so, so the record come out, then you hit the road. How did you go? How did you feel playing these songs uh, live? How did that that all come together? The live, the live sets, and and off the back of this tour, off the back of this album. Sorry. Well, we did an Aussie pub tour that was in Australia. So the record had, I don't even, oh, I guess it must have come out in Australia for us to do this. Yeah, it would have. And we played up around the coast, east coast of Australia. We went over to Perth as well. And um, we played the entire album from start to finish in a different order. And that was kind of, that was set. That's all, the only songs we had. So we played them. And then uh, and then we did the same. We went to England and Europe for the first time. We played the same set. It went for about an hour. And we played the whole, the whole album. That's, that's and not one song missed uh, from the gig unless we were supporting somebody. And then we'd only played, you know, half the record. Love it. Would you ever would you ever do that again? Like coming up on a say a an anniversary of it or something like that? Would you? Uh, would you ever? We do almost. Like yeah, we almost did with that one. It was in two thousand. Yeah, it was in two thousand seventeen. Uh, we almost did, but that just didn't work out with the schedule. We wanted to do just a tour, the Run and Wild tour, and we were going to go back to the same venues, like the same, you know, three four hundred caps and and play the whole album, uh, but it just never ended up happening. I think because we're going to lose a lot of money doing it and uh, we wouldn't have been able to record the next record or something like that. Anyway, it just didn't really work out. But it's not something that uh, we're – it's not something we've said no to. It's something that we're like, all right, we'll fuck the year thing. Uh, we'll do it when it works out. So it might not be the actual anniversary, but we'll, we'll still do it. It's, it's one record where I've, I've, we've thought about it a bit and thought we could do this again. Uh, and because we've, we've still got the original sets we used to play back then, we've still got all of that still written down. So we just got to um, definitely go to the gym or something before doing that one because, you know, <laughs> trying to live up to that, you know, uh, to the way we attacked it back then. Uh, and, and then, yeah, it'll be, uh, it, it would be a lot of fun though. But also, it's been, as we said, it's, it's been 13 years. Since that album, how do you, how do you look at at that time between that album and now and everything you've been through? It's might it must be quite a journey. It is. I really wish I could remember a lot more of it. I mean, things come <laughs> back every now and then. They do. They fly back in. You're like, oh yeah, that time and you know we were in um, you know Texas or something and then or, or wherever and, and remember things. But it really is a, a a long road that we've gone down. Like it's. To, it's it's almost too hard to think about. Sometimes I've seen, like, for example, they were like, you know, got to check old tour dates to see where we were, and then you'll see this list of stuff, and you're like, oh, wow, I don't remember. I don't remember this whole four year period. <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? It was a that was the No Gus No Glory album. Wow, it was probably a good thing we forget about that one, you know. But still, there's like um. <laughs> There's, uh, it, it is, it's a long, it's a long road and you just have weird little memories about things, where places where we were and, and you think, wow, we were really there, that really happened. We went to Japan and, and this happened and this and this and, you know, I remember being on Japan and Rock or Bus came out and had my Discman and I played Rock or Bus from a, a, a Japanese CD shop and I'm listening to it on the bullet train like, uh, no, not Rock or Bust, it was um, Black Ice. Right, and black ops and, you know, even further back, and I'm like, that rock and roll train. I'm like, yeah, I'm on a on a bullet train. This is great. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a long road. Yeah, love Beautiful. it. 
And, and then just touching on um, touching on a few things Australian. The album cover is very Australian. Yeah, yeah, that's Pentridge Prison in uh, Coburg, Coburg, the suburb of Coburg in Melbourne, which you can still. Uh, it's still there. The front of it is, but there's uh, there's houses out the back now. I don't know why anyone would live there. It's probably one of the most haunted places in the world. But yeah. that front of the of the um, of the what looks like a castle is the front of, of the prison. It's still there. Yeah. <laughs> have you have you heard of um, Ned Kelly, Nick? Ned Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. he's like an old an old bush ranger. Yeah, um, yeah. I think yeah. I think the thing with that prison too was Ned Kelly was buried there or moved there or something like that. He oh, was okay. even yeah. He might have been hung there. I'm not sure because it's a place called the Old Melbourne Jail, and yeah, there's something to do with Pentridge and and him. I'm, pr- I'm pretty yeah. sure. I, th- I think he was hung in Melbourne at the gates or something. And, yeah, that uh, might have been the the Old Melbourne Jail where he was hung. Yeah, and they dug up his they dug up his grave like forty years later by accident, so they moved him out to the out to that jail, something like that. Oh yeah. wow! Uh, wow! Cool. He was originally from Glen Rowan in Ballarat. I'm pretty sure. All right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, wow. See, that's our legends, Nick. Our, our legends: yeah. uh, Ed <laughs> Kelly, uh, yeah. Angry Anderson, and and Joel. That's right. <laughs> Jerry Wright. And, and Cherry Ripes. Fucking Cherry Ripes, Sam. <laughs> Cherry Ripes and VB. Can't get yeah, right. Mad Max. <laughs> um, man, I think we're done, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, we've cut a lot. Cut cool. a lot. Um, great record. It's seriously, it's um, such a strong debut record. It's it's you, yeah. it's something that you guys should be proud of and you should continue for your whole career to be proud because yeah. it's, it's, it's such a standout debut record. Yeah, thank you, mate. It's... um. It's it's a good one to have in the catalogue, and it was a great one to come out swinging with. It's um we still play a lot of the songs of this record, and we still, you know, it always comes up in and whenever we're mixing a new record or we're writing songs or, or something like that, you know, it, it always comes up as the one we, no, not really compared to, but like put up next to in a way of just to see where we're at and sort of just make sure we haven't lost our way or, or anything like that. You know, there's no sort of jazz odyssey drum solos or, or um, you know, sort of uh, indie-inspired new sort of musical landscapes that everyone's going out on with these sort of, you know, um, flutes and acoustic guitars. We just make sure that we, you know, what we've just recorded, you know, get rid of the, anything that doesn't need to be there or just it's it's kind of, yeah, it's, a, it's our yardstick and it's also, it really is our heart and soul of the band, that record, everything we're about. And it stands the test of time, both songwriting and it sounds, dude, it sounds fucking great. It really does yeah. sound great still now. Thanks, mate. And the hi-hats are just, they are perfect hi-hats. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, guys. Um, so check it out, everyone. Go back and dig dig back into the whole catalogue. Check out Bone Shaker as well, um, your guys' most recent record. Um, another killer addition to the Airborne catalogue. Thank you, um, and and hopefully we will see you over here sooner rather than later. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, you know we'll we'll see how we go and see how I guess the world sees how we go and of of what the world is doing and then uh, you know we'll all get back and you know and uh, we'll all stand in in crowds again for the first time and we'll all you know we'll we'll, we'll fucking rock again. It'll be great. But exactly like you said, you can rock at home. So you know, keep rocking out to awesome radio shows like this and. Yeah. Uh, you know, going down the vinyl 
the vinyl hole to see what else is out there and just, you know, just rock rock your whole way through it. Cool. And leave leave some room in your uh, luggage for some vinyls when you're over. <laughs> oh, will do, mate. Too easy. All righty. Thanks, mate. All righty. No worries. Everybody, bye. Catch cool, up. Cool, bye. Bye.